morning. Our scripture reading comes from the second book of Timothy, chapter 3. 2 Timothy, chapter 3. Please remain standing. Read verses 1 through 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Let us pray. Father, these are your words. They are true and they are certain. They were given to us. Father, to sanctify us. We praise you that you have preserved them for us, and we pray now that your spirit, Father, would teach us through them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penned much of the content of the New Testament in the form of the epistles. In these letters, because the Spirit guided the authors organically, we can see much of the author's heart in their writing. We can sense Paul's passion, we can feel his agony, and we can detect his joy depending on the circumstances in which he is writing. For example, despite being on house arrest and awaiting trial, Paul writes to the Philippians with a sense of hope and anticipation that his incarceration is being used by God for good. Listen to how he opens his letter in Philippians 1. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much bolder to speak the word without fear. However, we know that significant events would transpire between Paul's letter to the Philippians and between his first and second letters to Timothy. Persecution had intensified dramatically under the Emperor Nero, and when Paul is arrested for the second time, not even his privilege as a Roman citizen, used so often to protect him and rescue him from life-threatening situations, not even this citizenship could protect him from the persecution that the church was experiencing at that time. And on the occasion of this second arrest, according to tradition, Paul found himself languishing in the most horrid of places, an ancient dungeon called the Mamertine Prison. Now it is said that this dungeon, which was adjacent and connected to a sewage drain, when it would become too full of prisoners, would be flooded with sewage, drowning the prisoners, and then filled again with more poor, wretched souls. None who found themselves in the Mamertine Prison held out any hope of release. 
And it is this backdrop, according to tradition, in the darkness, in the filth, and in the wretched conditions that most likely Paul dictates his final letter, which we know today as 2 Timothy. In contrast to his hopeful opening in Philippians, here we see a letter written by a man at the end of his life. And unlike his other letters, there is no anticipation of visiting another church or stopping to see a beloved friend. Instead, as he says in chapter 4, he is being poured out as a drink offering, finished with his race, done with his fight, and awaiting his crown of righteousness. Now it is here in this last letter that we see Paul's heart. It is here that he writes to Timothy the things that, we, that, that he wants him to remember long after he is gone. The things that matter most to Paul. And what Paul wants Timothy to do is contend for the truth. To hold on to sound doctrine. To have boldness in the gospel. And to be aware of false teachers. His primary concern at the end of his life is passing the gospel light and truth to the next generation. Now, as we know, there have been many religious and political movements throughout history, and so often when the leader dies, the movement dies with him. But from Genesis to Revelation, the pattern that God establishes is the teaching of the next generation, from parent to child, from older to younger. God's covenant people continue by being faithful to teach the next generation. In fact, we see that in his theophany appearance to Abraham in Genesis 18. Listen to how God says he will bring about his promises. Verse 19, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. And so here in 2 Timothy, we see a man that understands that the gospel was bigger than even Paul's ministry. Now, I think one of the reasons we do not see the deaths of Paul or Peter or the other apostles recorded in Scripture is because it's primarily not about them. It is about the advancement of the kingdom of God. It is about contending for the truth of the gospel. It is about preaching the gospel. It is about teaching the next generation. It is not about us, brothers and sisters. The church will go on long after you and I are gone. And God will bring about his promises from generation to generation generation until the Lord returns. Praise the Lord. Now as we glimpse the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy, it is useful to contemplate what we would write if we knew we only had a short period of time to live. Now I think we can all agree that we would not write about trivial things. We would spend our time passing on those things that mattered most. And in this letter, Paul is preoccupied, even obsessive, about the future of the church. Paul is anticipating the end of his earthly life, and his concern for his young disciple Timothy is to hold on to that which is true. Six times in this short letter, Paul tells Timothy, there is one version of truth, Timothy. Do not sway from that truth. Do not move away from that truth. To drift away from that truth is dangerous. It is apostasy, and it is deadly. And Christians, this morning we have been reminded already that we have a standard of truth. And that standard is unchanging. And that standard is the inspired and inerrant word of God. And Paul's letter, if anything else, should encourage us and challenge us to renew our commitment to hold on to that which is true. Particularly as we find ourselves living in a culture that says there is no such thing. As we find ourselves and our children bombarded with messages contrary to the truth of the gospel. I was talking to a man 
I used to work with several years ago, and our conversation moved on to what we believed, our worldview, what were our guiding principles. And he shared with me very honestly that he was driven by the pursuit of pleasure. And he said, everyone should embrace everything that makes him or her happy. When I told him I was a follower of Jesus Christ, he replied, as you probably know, that's good for you. As long as no one else has to believe that way, and as long as you don't think anybody else has to believe that way. But we know this morning, Christians, these are not abstract principles. The gospel and the word of God are not simply ways for us to find personal happiness. The truth is literally a matter of life and death, eternal life and eternal death. We are engaging a culture that has lost its way. Now, I must preface this morning, as you've already heard in the reading of the Scripture, these are not what Pollyanna Harrington would call the glad passages of Scripture. But rather, these are distressing verses, but they are intended to serve as a warning. And warnings are not intended to be pleasant, like a caution sign or a danger sign that you come upon while driving. These signs are intended to make us pay attention. Now, we've broken this passage into three sections this morning. The warning of perilous times, the character of perilous people, and finally the demise of perilous plans. First, Paul warns Timothy that difficult seasons will come. Look at verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Now, Paul is telling Timothy and telling us this morning that we must hold on to, abide in, and know, and teach, and preach that which is true. He says, because there will be times more severe than others when people will not abide the truth. They will not tolerate the truth. Their lives will ultimately reflect a turning away from that which is true. At the end of chapter 2 in this letter, in verses 24 and 25, Paul says, be patient, Timothy. Be gentle. Preach the gospel. And hopefully God will grant his enemies a knowledge of the truth and save them from the captivity of Satan. But Paul says here, it's not going to be easy, Timothy. There will be seasons that are more difficult than others when people would rather hear something else. There will be seasons when people become angry when they hear the truth. There will be seasons of time in life when people want to hear things that will not make any great demands on their life. Now, if we take a closer look at this phrase, times of difficulty, it is only used in one other place in the New Testament, Matthew 8, 28, which describes two demon-possessed men who are so violent and so dangerous that no one could go near them. So when Paul says there will be seasons of difficulty, we can think violent or dangerous. Challenging is not quite a strong enough word. The New King James uses the word perilous, which is where we get our sermon title this morning. Christians, just like Paul instructs Timothy, we must discern perilous times. Verse 1, we are plainly warned that these seasons will come. And when they come, they should not surprise us because Paul has already told us they will come. Now I want to pause also for a second and talk about this phrase, the last days. This phrase, unfortunately, has been too often misunderstood and misapplied, especially in this passage. There are some that will misuse this passage to try to show that the world is getting worse and worse and worse, and we must be near the end of all history, and Jesus must be coming back any second now. But we need to remember in the phrase, the last days here, Paul is not talking about the end of the world. 
There are two passages in Scripture that help us understand this. In Acts 2.16, Peter is preaching at Pentecost, and he's quoting the prophet Joel, and in Joel 2.28 says, In the last days God will pour out his Spirit on all flesh. And Peter, preaching at Pentecost, says that's what's happening right now. The last days are upon us. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 also says, Long ago, at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. The Old Testament prophets Isaiah and Micah and Joel all prophesied that the last days would be initiated at the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So church, we were in the last days 2,000 years ago. We are in the last days today. The next redemptive event in history is when Christ comes to claim his bride and judge the living of the, and the dead. Now these last days may be another five, fifty, five hundred or fifty thousand years. We don't know. But we know God is patient. We know God is not slow to keep his promises. And God will bring about all things according to his good purpose. But the point that Paul is not speaking is the, the point is that Paul is not speaking here about the end of the world and the return of Christ. Now there's two more comments that we want to use to confirm that this phrase that Paul is not speaking about the end times here. By simply reading the plain meaning of the passage, we see that Paul tells Timothy there will come times, plural, or seasons, plural, of difficulty. He is not indicating that this will happen one time at the end of the world, but rather there will be seasons that are more grievous than others. And second, we will see in just a second in verse 5, Paul tells Timothy to avoid certain kinds of people during these seasons. Paul is not telling Timothy to avoid people 2,000 years into the future. He's saying that this will happen during your ministry, Timothy. And this will happen during our ministry, church. There will be seasons of life that we find ourselves living in difficult times, and we should not be surprised when they come. Now, to be sure, the church in America is certainly not suffering persecution like many of our brothers and sisters in the international church. But we are living in a season of more perilous times when opposition to the gospel is intensifying, when compromise in the church is increasing, and as such, we may see true churches become smaller. We are living in a season when the true church is portrayed as unloving and intolerant and hateful. At the same time, we are seeing an increase in compromising, man-pleasing, culture-adopting churches. In other words, in many ways, we are seeing an increase of external religion that has abandoned biblical truth. A couple of examples in the most, states, most recent state of theology published by Legionnaire Ministries, 56% of confessing evangelical Christians believe that God accepts the worship of all religions. Over 25% believe that the Bible's teaching on homosexuality does not apply today. It's irrelevant. And almost half of confessing evangelical Christians do not believe that Jesus Christ is God. We have lost our way. So, the warning is before us. Perilous times will come and have come. And during these times, Paul says, you will recognize perilous people by their character. Let's look at the second point here, verses 2 through 4. The character of perilous people. The character of perilous people. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, 
treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Paul really gets on a roll here, and he provides a very lengthy list of the character of these perilous people. If you're in the habit of making notes or highlighting your Bible, underline the first one, lovers of self. Because the root of all the other evil attributes that Paul goes into is self-love. Everything after this flows out of self-love or self-pleasing. Now what makes this more perilous in our season is that self-love is today considered a virtue. Life is about my happiness. Follow your heart. Do what feels good. The center of the universe is me. Self-love has become an idol and it is wrapped in Christian language. But in fact, we see self-love is at the root of the destruction of the family. Self-love is at the root of the abortion culture. Self-love is at the root of the homosexual culture and the transgender movement and the destruction of modesty and morality in our culture. And all the way back into the garden, we see that there was self-love. Genesis 3, 6 and 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. But our first parents, they were ashamed of their transgression. They tried to hide from God. They tried to cover their shame. And as we work through this list, keep in mind that the culture today and in Timothy's day portrays these things not as evil, not as shameful, but these are good. These are things today to be celebrated. This is why we need to be on guard, Christians. The culture embraces these as virtues. Out of self-love comes lovers of money. In Paul's first letter to Timothy, he tells him the love or self-love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. From self-centered love comes a love of material gain. Now certainly this is not a condemnation of wealth, but rather the pursuit of wealth as a means to your pleasure and your satisfaction. God is as not much as interested in getting money to you, but through you. But lovers of money, however, are driven by the pursuit and the display of wealth. And when people love themselves and when people have made an idol of money, they become what? Look at the next one. Proud and arrogant people. The phrase here is literally boastfully arrogant. Proud of their pride. We see this particularly in our contemporary idols, sports and music and social media, television and movie personalities. American culture is obsessed with the most arrogant and prideful of people. But listen to the church, Jesus speaking to the church at Laodicea, Revelation 3.17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. Pride and arrogance has the power to blind people to their true condition. Pride and arrogance will cast a veil over the conditions of our hearts. We must guard our hearts carefully from the love of money and from pride. But for the Christian, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. What do we have that hasn't been given to us? The next word is abusive here. The word here is where we get our word today for blasphemy. It is better translated, revilers or blasphemers. The taking of God's name in vain has become so commonplace today that we hardly notice it. And so often, even within the church, what is the excuse we hear? Well, I don't mean it that way. 
You're making too much of it. That's not what I mean when I say it. But we must say it plainly this morning. Jesus Christ is king and blasphemy is treason against our king. As citizens of God's kingdom, we must guard and honor the holy name of Jesus Christ. But Paul warns us here that perilous people will care nothing for how they speak of our king, of the king. Next is disobedient to parents. Listen to one preacher describe the times. The world is passing through troublesome times. The young people of today think of nothing but themselves. They have no reverence for parents or old age. They are impatient of all their restraint. They talk as if they knew everything, and what passes for wisdom with us is foolishness. As for the girls, they are forward and modest and unladylike in speech, in behavior, and dress. Now, we might think that that was a contemporary author, but it was written by a church father, Peter the Hermit, in the 11th century. Now, truly, church, there is nothing new under the sun. Disrespect and disobedience to parents is a sign of perilous times. In perilous times, we will see parents marginalized, particularly fathers. In media today, in family shows, parents are portrayed often as clueless fools. The children know everything. The children solve every problem. The parents are merely there for comic relief, too stupid or too occupied to have any impact on the family. Now, these notions, of course, are rooted in fostering a culture of disrespect toward parents. The biblical pattern of parents teaching children, of older guiding and instructing younger, has been flipped on its head. Scripture assumes that it is the youth that are foolish that need wisdom. Scripture assumes that young people should pursue wisdom and that, that wisdom is gained from those who are older and wiser. But in perilous times, the prophecy of Isaiah ever comes to bear. Isaiah 3.12, My people, infants are their oppressors. Women rule over them. O people, your guides mislead you and they have swallowed up the course of your path. This is a long list. Ungrateful or unpleasant. Lack of gratitude. Ingratitude is a sure sign of a lost soul. Christians should be the most thankful of people because we know and we give praise to the one who has given us everything. Not recognizing God's blessing and goodness and mercy, but rather thinking that everything you have is deserved or owed to you. Entitlement culture in today's culture runs rampant. We have generations of people who think somebody owes them something. In his opening letter to the Romans, one of the reasons that God gives people over to futile thinking and a depraved mind is partly because of their lack of gratitude. Romans 1, 21, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. The Old Testament, particularly the Psalms, it is gratitude, giving thanks to God, that is the proper Christian response. We should be a people of gratitude. But in perilous times, we see ingratitude increasing. Next is heartless. Another word for that is unloving. This is defined in the Greek as without natural affection or without family love. And Paul is talking about the context is the destruction of the family, the natural affection for a parent to their child and a child to their parent. In perilous times, we see a hostility or an animosity between parent and child. Again, Romans 1, God gives people up to unnatural affection. But this is also a warning to fathers and mothers. Fathers more interested in sports and toys and leisure. 
passing on to their children the importance of the Sabbath only when it does not conflict with, with the God of whatever else we want to do on Sunday. In perilous times, people will be consumed with themselves to such a degree that parents will see even their children as a hindrance to their happiness. Let's jump to a few more of these. It's a depressing list. Slanderous, backbiting, accusing, gossiping, a society that seeks to sue anyone for anything which is fueled by an ungrateful and self-loving spirit. In 2021, 40 million lawsuits were filed in the United States. Without self-control, brutal, violent, not loving good, mocking goodness, mocking virtue, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Again, our culture is in love with people who are in love with themselves. And finally, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. We bring this back. Paul comes back to self-love as the root. Driven by pleasure, driven by emotions. In perilous times, people will be identified by their obsession with pleasure. And he just told Timothy in 2.22, flee youthful passions. And the context is Paul, the older, telling the younger Timothy, you need to grow up and mature. Don't be driven by pleasure. Don't be driven by your emotions because that's what young foolish people do. And in perilous times, youthful passions have been extended into our 30s and 40s and 50s. Now at the end of this long and depressing list, we return to the beginning of the section. At the heart of the descriptions of the signs that we are living in perilous times is self-love. And self-love will be motivated and guided by our feelings. And this is why, as we said earlier, Paul tells Timothy six times in this letter at the end of his life to know and to preach, to contend for, to hold fast to the truth. The Christian must be guided by the Word of God in everything that we do, not just in perilous times, but in all times. In season and out of seasons, the church must be contending for the truth. Now, continuing the character of perilous people, Paul now reveals something about these people that might surprise us. Look at verse 5. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Now, this statement should rock us back in our seat for just a minute. Look back over this list. We know that the world looks like this. They're lost. They are blinded. They are God-haters. Paul tells Timothy earlier, hopefully God will rescue those types of people. Their hearts are darkened. They are foolish. We were once like this until God had mercy on us. But Paul says they're not just out in the world. They will appear to be religious people. They will have a form of godliness. They will appear to be godly in perilous times. Perilous people will have a form of godliness. They will work their way into churches. They will call themselves Christians. Having the appearance of godliness. This is the danger that Paul warns us about. People that talk more about spirituality and less about truth. People that are more consumed with emotions and passions as the measure of truth. This is the end-all, be-all, when somebody says, I feel like it's right. What can you say? Paul is warning us, Timothy, you need to be on guard for the imposters in the church. And we might think, how can people call themselves Christians and be described by this awful list that we just read? 
But remember, how did Jesus describe the most religious people of his day, the Pharisees? Whitewashed tombs, externally religious, and yet dead on the inside. The Pharisees had an external form of godliness. And what are we to do with people like this? Paul is very plain. Avoid them. And when we connect verses 1 through 5, we can paraphrase this section. Timothy, understand what these people look like and stay away from them. Do not make alliances with them in the name of peace. They will water down and they will weaken the church, so stay away from them. And praise the Lord for our elders who are called, like Timothy, to guard the church against infiltrators and false teachers. Now hear this carefully. This does not mean that we circle up in our church and we never go out. We are told to be salt and light. We are told to preach the gospel. All nations must come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. But what Paul is warning Timothy and for us today is that those who claim to to worship and serve the same God, but in fact are liars and imposters, are in wolves. Paul warns about wolves many, many times within the church. And Paul says, and they are known by their fruit. Two other times in Scripture, Romans 16, 17, I appeal to you, this is Paul again, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. The second time, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, which means emotions. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. 1 Corinthians 5, 9-11, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. But I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard. Don't even eat with such a one. So Paul warns us to discern the times, to watch out for those in the visible church who bear the name of Christians, and yet they are imposters. Watch their life and doctrine, Paul says. It will give them away. Next, Paul describes the methods of these people during perilous times, and listen to how Paul describes them in contrast with the truth. Verses 6-8. through For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Now here Paul gives us some practical application here. He He says here's a specific tactic by some of these during perilous times during these seasons in which they will use to deceive people. Now again, we need to be clear, Paul is not being chauvinistic here. This is not toxic masculinity on display here with Paul. Paul speaks very highly of women in the church and how much they mean to him and his ministry, but Paul is speaking of a particular kind of woman in the church. In the name of godliness and religion, men and women deceivers, so-called preachers and teachers, peddlers of feel-good religion, they will take advantage of women who are weak in their faith. That's what Paul says. He will take advantage of women who are not holding on to sound doctrine. Women who are always being led astray, he says, being emotionally moved by a new teacher with a new teaching. Very spiritual people, but never arriving at the truth, never grasping sound doctrine, never recognizing false teaching. 
And notice again what is at the heart of these that will be deceived, the end of verse 6. Driven by passions, led astray by our emotions. Reading through this letter, you find a constant contrast between being led by our passions and being led by the truth. Our emotions are not the measure of truth. The Word of God is the measure of truth. Now again, to be clear, Paul is not saying all women are easily deceived. Paul speaks of Christian women as being sober-minded and faithful and dignified. These are not the type of women that will be deceived. Now perhaps, husbands, you may be nodding your head in approval here. But not so fast, because husbands and fathers are indicted in this as well. Paul has not discovered a new and novel tactic of subversion by the enemy but rather he knows the methods used by the original deceiver, Satan, in the garden. Satan's strategy was to go around the head of the family, to infiltrate the family by going around the God-ordained authority in the home. Satan will subvert authority and deceive any way he can. Adam should have protected his wife and driven the serpent from the garden for trying to deceive his wife from the truth. Men, husbands, and fathers, we are called to protect and provide for our wives and children, and that means being the spiritual leaders in our homes. We must be the teachers of sound doctrine in our homes. We must be the protector against false teaching in our homes. Our wives and our sons and our daughters will be noble and dignified and discerning when we are faithful to teach them sound doctrine. Wives and daughters, doctrine is not something simply that men talk about. You must be discerning of the truth. False teachers will prey on emotions and passions. In order to recognize error, we must know the truth. This is an old illustration, but it is so fitting. The Secret Service does not learn to recognize counterfeit money by studying counterfeit money. They study the real thing so intently that the false one becomes obvious. And so church, we must recognize truth, 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 so that false teaching becomes evident. The more we know about God's characters, the, the character, the more we know about God's ways, the more we know about God's word, the greater the contrast we will recognize between truth and error. Now, who are Janus and Jambres? According to Jewish oral and written tradition, these were the fabled names of the sorcerers that opposed Moses initially, trying to match his miracles one for one in Exodus 7. And Jewish tradition says that they became false converts when the Exodus took place. They left with Israel out of Egypt and later incited Aaron to make the golden calf. Now, we don't know if that was their real names, but it is important to understand the meaning of their fabled names. One who deceives and one who makes rebellious. Paul is making a point here from Jewish tradition. Timothy would recognize these names. That just like these two men who opposed the truth, opposed those that were in authority, and deceived and led astray many, so we need to be on guard for those that will deceive and lead astray those that would rebel against the truth. Now certainly, as we said at the beginning, this has not been the most pleasant of passages this morning. Paul provides a warning for the church to be on guard that during perilous times there will be perilous people inside and outside of the church. But we can make two mistakes of responding improperly to this passage. The first is the Luke 18 proud Pharisee response. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. 
This is not a call to find fault with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Contrary to popular belief, criticism is not a spiritual gift. We must be on guard against our own hearts from pride and gossip and petty divisions that will divide the church. Second is the 1 Kings 19 Elijah response. They've killed all the prophets and I'm the only one left. This is also not a call to circle up in our church and despair that there are no other true churches left. Except ours, of course. Paul is no pessimist here. Even at the end of his life, even in a dark prison cell, he ends this section with hope. We've looked at the warning of perilous times. We've seen the character of perilous people and some of their tactics. Now, as we close, we will see the demise of perilous plans. Look at verse 9. But they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. The proper response, church, in perilous times is not despair, but faithfulness. If we think that Paul is saying, this is the worst of times, Timothy, and the worst of times, Timothy, Paul says, no, there are deceivers, there are reprobate people, there are enemies of the church, but they won't get very far because their foolishness will be plain to all. God will give discernment to his people. To be sure, the enemies of the church will advance constantly in this age to such a degree that it seems like the church would be destroyed from the inside out. But be encouraged this morning, this has never happened in the history of the church. Church, it cannot happen and it will not happen because Jesus Christ said it would never happen. The gates of hell will never prevail against the true church of Jesus Christ. As we will sing in just a moment our hymn of response, And though this world with devils filled may threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Just like Luther listened to Jonathan Edwards speak about men, Satan being confounded by the preaching of the gospel. And what a consternation were all the devils in when they saw the gospel begin to spread so fast in the world against which they had made no preparations, it being what they never in the least suspected that the preaching of the death of Christ should be a means of saving the world. So as we close... Let us remember, it will always be challenging to live within God's plan and in God's timing. This is why we are called to live by faith and not by sight. To be faithful where we are, in season and out of season, in perilous times and in less perilous times. In times of peril or despair or distress, God is still seated on his throne. When it appears from our perspective that God is not in control, when we see things with our eyes that are repulsive, when we see injustice seeming to be growing, when we see God's word perverted, when we see our political system corrupted and fueled by greed and lies, when we see churches that will twist the word of God, when we see churches that will turn worship into a carnival show to entertain the masses, do not fear. Do not despair, Paul says. They will not get very far. They have short lives. And God will go on forever and ever. And his people will. So we can cry out with David like in the Psalms. How long will the wicked prosper? And yet as David so many times finishes his Psalms. Yet I will trust in the Lord. Church, be encouraged this morning. God will preserve his people. 
God will protect his people. God knows his people and is known by his people. Now this morning, for the people of God, if you are trusting in the promises of God, if Christ is Savior and Lord, then what can man do to us? Heed Paul's words here, though. Hold fast and contend for the truth. Now, if you are here and you're trusting in your own goodness this morning, if you have never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners, turn to the only one who can give you lasting hope in the most uncertain of times. In the 6th century B.C., Judah was on the verge of invasion. Babylon was about to destroy them and take them into captivity. And what appeared to be the end of God's people. The prophet Habakkuk, after much consternation and wrestling with the sovereign will of God, turns to him in faith. And despite what he sees with his eyes, resigns himself to walk by faith and not by sight. And his prayer stands for us as an enduring witness to trusting in the sure promises of God. And his prayer gives us hope, like Paul at the end of his life, that God will deliver us. May it be our prayer in every season, perilous or not. Listen to what Habakkuk says. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. Let us pray. Father, as Jesus Christ prayed on our behalf, sanctify us in your truth because your word is truth. Father, we've heard difficult times are before us. But Father, we thank you for the promise and the advancement of the sure victory that the gospel brings. Grant us hope that sees beyond our human eyes and fix our eyes on our Savior, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.